All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, we pray now that you would once again today help us to grasp the glory and the greatness of your grace toward us, the grace that brought us to the fold of God. All right, it's great to see everyone this morning. We are going to be looking specifically at verses 8 and 9 and also touching on verse 10. So let me read those once again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we come once again to the bright and beautiful hues in the picture Paul is painting for us of God's great salvation. Having given us a picture of our true and desperate condition by nature, that of being spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, in league with and under the dominion of the devil, all of us children who have merited nothing but the wrath of God, hopelessly lost and utterly incapable of doing anything to change our condition. That's the picture Paul had been painting, but then he reminded us that God stepped in, but God who is rich and mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when this was our state, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. He said that in the fifth verse. Now here in the eighth verse, Paul states the same thing, but he elaborates now further upon what he had already said. By grace, you have been saved. But now he adds through faith, that not of yourselves, that is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So let's break that down together today, beginning with the word saved. Saved, what a 
What a wonderful word it is. We find it many times over in the scripture. Uh, It's a wonderful word to those who are saved. It's a mysterious word to some that aren't saved. It's, um, It's a negative word to people who don't believe they need to be saved. But to those who are saved, oh, it's a great and wonderful word. And the word saved, notice, is in the past tense. We have been saved. But as we think of salvation, we can think of it in the past, present, and future. Because that's really, it's, it's all included in our salvation. There's a, there's a past aspect to it, there's a present aspect to it, and there is yet a future aspect to it. So looking back into the past, we say that we have been saved, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin was spiritual death. We've been brought to life. We've been saved out of that. Along with that uh, penalty of sin, there was the guilt of sin. And we lived under the burden of that guilt. So we've been saved from that. We use that terminology. We have been saved. But it's also accurate to say that we are being saved. We are being saved presently from the power of sin. That power that sin once had over us, that power has been broken. And God, by his spirit, is continuing to liberate us. He's continuing to set us free. So we are being set free progressively from the power of sin. And yet there's also a future aspect to our salvation. We can look forward and say, I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be saved from the presence of sin. You see, we're saved now, but we still have with us the presence of sin. Sin is still here. But one day we will be saved from sin in the entire sense that the presence of sin will no longer be an issue for us. So when we talk about being saved, when Paul says here, by grace you have been saved, that's what he's really talking about. So we can confidently say that we have been saved. It's, it's something that's happened in the past. It's, it's a done deal. But yet we can also say we're being saved and we will be saved in the future. Saved is a perfect participle. And quoting from John Stott, he said it, emphasizes the abiding consequences of God's saving action in the past, as if Paul should say, you are people who have been saved and remain saved forever. We have been saved. We can confidently say that. Some time ago, years ago, I was out in my garage, actually, in a couple of Young guys pulled up on their bicycles and wanted to talk to me about uh, spiritual things. They, yes, were Mormons. And uh, we started to talk, and we started to talk about um, salvation and so forth. And I, I said to them, I said, well, you know, I'm actually saved. And they sort of scoffed at that. They thought that that was humorous, that I thought a person could be saved, because in their minds, they're working their way into whatever their perception of salvation happened to be. 
Actually, the fact that they rode up on their bikes and were gonna knock on my door, that was part of the work that they were doing to eventually be saved. So in their minds, there was no idea that saved could be something that was already accomplished. And as they scoffed at it, I just simply turned to, I had my Bible there, I just turned to my Bible and I pointed the path to the passage that we're looking at here. I said, well, look, it says right here, it says saved. So we are saved. There, there are many people, even, even in the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ, there are many people that don't have the confidence to say that they're saved. They, they say, well, I, I'm trying to be saved. I, I'm hoping that I will be saved. But listen, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are saved. Past tense, it's done. He saved you. And what he did in the past, it has ramifications, or as Stott said there, it has consequences all the way out into the future. So you can rest in that. Some people say, well, it sounds a little bit arrogant that you think you're saved. Wow, you must be a really holy person. No, not at all. If I thought I was saved because I was such a good person, that would certainly be arrogance. But I know I'm saved. I know it's, it's a done deal, so to speak. I know I'm going to heaven, not because I'm a good person, not because I'm a pastor. I'm saved because of what Jesus did, and I've just put my trust in him. That's how the Bible tells us that we get saved. And that's what Paul is saying here once again as he is magnifying God's gift of salvation to us. So saved, but saved by grace. Grace, the grace of God. The grace of God is such a wonderful concept. It's it's something that we, of course, we're familiar with in at least the, the term grace, but I find that quite often we don't really even know the, the magnificence of God's grace. We, we don't know the full implications of it. And, and it's, it's a little bit difficult because it's such a rich and magnificent idea, it's hard to express in just a few words just what it is we're talking about. I, I said to Cheryl last night or yesterday when I was preparing, I said, hey, give me your best one-sentence description of grace. And she came off immediately with the acronym uh, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And she knew that I wanted more than that, but she just said it really quickly. Um, and I said, okay, yes, of course, we, we, we've all heard that, but give me something better than that. I mean, that's good. I'm not saying it's not good. It is good. It's accurate as well. But is there a way to, to even maybe in a sentence or a small paragraph to, to describe it? And so I came up with this, but it's really based on what's being said here in the text. Grace is the bestowing of mercy, love, kindness, favor, and blessing upon the undeserving. There's two things to emphasize here, the undeserving, and that's usually what we do emphasize. We say in defining grace, we say grace is God's unmerited favor, favor that we did not uh, work for. 
Actually, if you want to look at merit, we merited wrath. We did not merit favor. So we say grace is God's unmerited favor. That is true. But the emphasis there is on the unmerited part. But we also need to put the emphasis on grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is not just a little bit of favor, not just a little bit of kindness, not just a little bit of blessing. The word itself implies an abundance, this, this wealth that God has bestowed upon us. Someone put it this way in a song. Grace takes the blame, covers the shame, removes the stain. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. I think that's well put. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Grace takes the blame. We were to be blamed, but by God's grace, Jesus took the blame for us. He stood in our place. He took the blame. He took the the punishment. Grace covers the shame. The things that we have done in our rebellion against God and in our lust and in our self-seeking, they're shameful things, but God's grace covers that shame. Those depraved things have have left a stain upon our lives, but the grace of God removes the stain. The grace of God truly makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace takes sinners and makes them saints. Grace takes rebels and makes them willing subjects. Grace takes haters and makes them lovers. Grace takes those who hate God and turn them into lovers of God. Grace takes the proud and makes them humble. Grace takes the children of wrath and makes them the children of God. Now, in case you didn't know this, grace is one of the unique features of the Christian faith. I say one of the unique features because there are many Uh, aspects of the Christian faith that are unique. You don't find them in any other religion. Uh, But grace is especially that. As a matter of fact, there is nothing like it found in any other religion. You can search the world over high and low. You can look at every religion there is today or ever has been in history, and you will find that every religion has this one thing in common. The one thing that every religion has in common is that acceptance with God is based upon human merit. You work, you earn your way into God's favor through some process, through some ritual, through some uh, set of deeds or whatever the case might be. This This is common with all religions. The only exclusion, or the only one excluded from that, is the gospel. The gospel has a completely different picture. This is one of the reasons that I believe the gospel is what it claims to be. It's God's gospel. It's not man's gospel. Men did not invent this. They, they would have never come up with it. 
that you would have God doing all of the work and man doing nothing. All we do is admit that we can't help ourselves. And that's a difficult thing for anybody to do, isn't it? But that's what we do. We just simply admit that we're helpless and God does everything else that needs to be done. He does all of the the heavy lifting, so to speak. He does the work of saving us. And he saves us not because we earn his favor. He saves us simply because he desires to save us. So the grace of God, by grace, you have been saved through faith. So faith is the means through which I experience this salvation that comes to me solely by the grace of God. Faith means simply trust or belief. Sometimes when we say faith, that the, the word faith in, in a lot of people's minds automatically makes them think of something religious. Oh, faith. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have faith. I'm not a person of faith. Well, are you a person of trust? Can you trust? Are you a person who can believe something? That's what faith is. Faith is just, it's simple. It's not a religious term. It's just, it, it's a synonym for trusting or believing. So this salvation that we're talking about, this becomes ours through faith. We put our faith in Christ or we trust Christ to have done what he says that he did, which is make salvation possible through dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and so forth. So by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he says this, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now we have to get a little bit theological here today. And we have to look closely at this next point here. So speaking of the gift of God, By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Here's the question. Is the gift a reference to faith or is it a reference to salvation in the general sense? Now, there are good uh, grammatical reasons why The reference here has to be to salvation rather than faith, but I'm not going to emphasize that. Instead, I want to just look at the the bigger picture of what we see in the Bible regarding salvation, regarding God's free gift and so forth. Uh, Now, I'm asking this question for a specific reason. There are different views among Christians. There's an in-house dispute over what is actually being taught here. So generally speaking, in answer to the question, is the gift a reference to faith or salvation? Generally speaking, the Calvinist would say the gift is a reference to faith, not to salvation. And the non-Calvinist would say the gift is salvation. Ironically, John Calvin, 
who would ostensibly be the founder of Calvinism, said the gift was salvation here, not faith. Uh, Let me quote directly from Calvin's commentary in the New Testament. He said, some commonly misinterpret this text and restrict the word gift to faith alone. But Paul is only repeating his earlier statement in other words. He does not mean that faith is the gift of God, but that salvation is given to us by God as a gift. Now, you might be wondering, why am I even bringing this up or going into this kind of detail on this? And the reason for that is this. One of the main distinctions between Calvinism or what some people would refer to as Reformed theology and what I believe to be the more biblical perspective on this aspect of salvation centers around this question. So even though you might not realize that this is a pretty huge issue in this debate that has gone on for centuries among Christians. Let's look at it. If we say that the the gift here that Paul's referring to is salvation, if we say that, There's really nothing complicated, confusing, or concerning about the statement. There are many places in the Bible already that tell us that salvation is the gift. Um, The gift of God is eternal life, Paul writes to the Romans. Jesus spoke of, uh, to the woman at the well, he spoke of the gift of God. If you knew who I was and the gift of God, he was speaking about the salvation that he would bring there. We can find other passages where Clearly, salvation is presented as being uh, the gift of God. But if I say that the gift of God here is not salvation, but actually it's faith, this to me creates a whole lot of confusion about the nature of salvation, about how a person is saved, and about who can be saved. So follow me on this. If faith is God's gift and not salvation, then apart from God giving the gift of faith, no one can believe and be saved. So understand that. If, if this passage is saying, by grace you have been saved through faith, and the faith is not of yourself, but is, is the gift of God, then, of course, that means that Uh, apart from God giving faith, no one can believe and be saved. Now, some might say, well, okay, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with this view is, number one, how could God hold a man responsible for his unbelief if God is the one that must enable him to believe and without the gift of faith, believing is impossible? So this this would create a, a, a... a dilemma in how could God really hold you responsible if you didn't believe, if you didn't have faith, if you could only have faith because God gives it to you as a gift. But if he decides to withhold the gift of faith, then how could you ultimately in the end be responsible for not having that which you had no capacity to have, no ability to have, and God didn't give it to you? Secondly, If God is not willing that any should perish, if God desires that all men be saved, which we know to be the case from the plain statements of scripture, those are scriptural references I just made there, 
Why then would he withhold the gift of faith from some? Now, to me, this is an illogical position. To me, this, this contradicts the, the, the clear message of the scripture. It's not, by grace, you have been saved through faith, and the faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. I think clearly the, it's, the salvation is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I think that we can build a case that all men have been given the ability to believe and their eternal destinies depend upon the exercising of that ability. That's the, the message of scripture. Years ago, I was debating with a, a friend who happened to hold the Calvinistic view. And I said to him, uh, God is, he's given everybody the ability to believe. And he said, give me a scripture for that. I said, give you a scripture, I'll give you the whole Bible. The Bible teaches that. I can't find one verse that says God has given everybody the um, ability to believe. But certainly that is what is implied in the biblical text as you read it from Genesis to Revelation. All through the Bible, God is calling people to faith. He's calling people to believe in him and he's promising to bless those who do and he's gonna ultimately judge those who don't. And so implied in the scripture from from beginning to end is this, to me, clear idea that what God has granted to humanity, even though we lost certain things in the fall, we did not lose the ability to believe. Or if we did lose it at that point, he then somehow gave it back. Okay, you want to call it a gift? He gave it back, but he gave it to everybody. You see, in the reformed, the Calvinistic position, when you start getting down to this gift, uh, faith being the gift, then you also get down to, well, God doesn't give that gift to everybody. He doesn't give the gift of saving faith to everybody. Well, why, why not? If God wants everybody to be saved and he's the one who's gonna determine that, why, why doesn't he give it to everyone? So it, it creates difficulties. It creates uh, confusion, I think. Let me give you just a couple of quick scriptural examples where I think it's, obviously implied here clearly that everybody can believe. Paul said in Acts chapter, recorded in Acts chapter 17, he said to the philosophers on Mars Hill, he said, God commands all men everywhere to repent. So God commands everybody to do something. If they can't do it, unless he gives them the faith, then again, how could he hold them accountable? The, the counter argument from the reform person would be, well, God commands us to do a lot of things we can't, can't do. He commands us to keep the law, but we can't keep the law. So you, you get into all this theological double talk, but um, to me, this is a pretty clear st statement. The implication is everybody is able to repent, which is the same idea of everybody is able to believe. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, the Jews were stunned the early Jewish Christians were stunned when the Gentiles began to get saved. They thought that this whole salvation through the Messiah was just really a Jewish thing. And when Peter went to the house of Cornelius and Cornelius got saved and the Gentiles began to get saved, the Jews responded and said, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So again, implied in that is that all of the Gentiles can be saved. 
just like they had previously thought only the Jews could be saved, now they're realizing, no, the salvation is a universal offer. Now, some would persist that it has to be faith that's being referred to as the gift here. They would say that a person uh, who is dead cannot exercise faith. And they go back to the first verse of the second chapter here and say, see, we're dead in trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do? Well, if we think of it in the strictest terms of dead people, they don't do anything. And that's their point. They say, ha ha, that's right. That's it. A dead man can't do anything. A dead man can't do anything until he's first, the dead man has to be made alive before he even can have faith or make a decision. And this is where you get into their theological view that is known as regeneration before faith. So you're, you're, you're made spiritually alive and then you believe later. God gives you the gift of faith. But again, this creates all kinds of problems because what we're talking about there and being made alive, we're talking about the doctrine of regeneration. In the Bible, regeneration and salvation are, are synonymous. If you're regenerated, you're saved. So is it possible to be saved before you have any faith? Is it possible to be saved without believing? Paul seems to say here in the text that this is how you do get saved. You have to believe. So the argument that would say that uh, it has to be this has to be referring to faith because a dead man can't do anything. A dead man certainly cannot have faith. But the problem here, as I see it, is that they're taking Paul's metaphor further than he intended. When Paul said we're dead in our trespasses and sins, he didn't mean that like dead men, we have no capacity to hear or to know or to uh, at all understand certain things about God, but that we could not do anything to save ourselves. In regard to saving ourselves, yes, we are like dead men. Dead men can't do anything, so we can't save ourselves. But the idea in their mind is that being dead means you cannot have any real true concept of God. You cannot hear God. You cannot have any kind of experience or interaction with God. You have to, first of all, be brought to life. You have to be regenerated, which means you have to be saved before you believe. It's, it's a complicated theological system that I think is being imposed on the scripture rather than drawn out of the scripture. Think about where trespasses and sins began. Who did they begin with? They began with Adam, right? Adam and Eve, they, they trespassed. God said, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall die. So they were the ones, they died. They were then dead in their trespasses and sins. What happens after that? God shows up and he talks with them and he has communion with them. He has, he's still going on. He, of course, he pronounces a judgment upon them, but he also provides covering for them at that point because of their nakedness. And he gives them certain promises and then he does send them out of the garden. But my point is this, they are dead in their trespasses and sins, but they're still having... Uh, some kind of a connection with God. So what that tells me is that when Paul said you're dead in your trespasses and sins, it doesn't mean that you couldn't believe. 
God's left that within the human constitution, despite of our, spa, our fall into sin, he, he still allowed us that ability to have faith, believe. I think, again, that's implied all throughout scripture. One other argument that is often put forth, some say that if we say faith is not God's gift in the context here, if I say by grace you have been saved through faith and the faith is not of yourself, if we don't say that, then they say, well, then you're turning faith into a work. That's what they accuse us of. If faith is something they say that you're able to bring to the table, then you're saying that you contributed to your own salvation. Does anybody here today that has received Christ and been saved by him, does anyone in this room think that you saved yourself? I don't think I saved myself. I'm absolutely certain I didn't save myself. Now, I did put faith in Christ, but I don't go around... You know, when I'm in a crowd of unbelievers, I don't look at them and go, oh, those poor suckers, you know, they didn't have any faith like me. I I have lots of faith. That's why I'm saved and they're not. No, we don't do that. We don't think that those thoughts never cross our mind. When I think of being saved, I know I'm saved entirely by Christ. All I've done is I've just believed what he did. That's all I've done. That's not a work. Now, they want to turn it into a work because it helps promote their view But you can't do that because in the Bible, you never have these two things confused. They're always distinct. Faith is one thing and works are a different thing. Faith is not works and works are not faith. Paul goes, he goes to lengths to uh, make this clear in, especially in Romans. So no, we're, we're not turning faith into a work. Faith is a different thing. God says it's a different thing. And God says that apart from it, nobody's going to be saved. You have to have faith. You have to exercise faith. God has given all people the ability to do that very thing, to exercise faith. Now, once again, just in finalizing some of the points here, you see with the reform position, and let me be clear the Calvinistic position, uh, like I said, this is an in-house argument. This is a family dispute. People who believe the the other view, of course, they're Christians, Um, just like we're Christians. This is is not a, a salvation issue at all, but it is an issue that I think needs to be addressed occasionally, especially when we come across it in a text, uh, because those who hold the, the reform position, they, they quite often are very forceful and they're very much insisting that this is the right view. And if you don't hold this view, then you are, have some uh, defect in your doctrinal understanding. And uh, I'm sorry, I just disagree with that. I think the defect is in their doctrinal understanding. And I think it's due to the fact that they are reading something into the Bible that comes from their theological system rather than letting the Bible shape their theological system. I want to have a theological system that is consistent with the Bible. If my theological system is in, in contradiction to the scriptures, I need to adjust my theological system. And there are certain places where that particular view, the reform view, is definitely in conflict with the plain statements of scripture. Now they've got all kinds of fanciful 
philosophical type of ways of getting around it. But nevertheless, the fact of the matter is there are certain irreconcilable things. The scripture says one thing, like I've already pointed out, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God is not willing that any should perish. But the theological system of Calvinism will tell you that, oh yes, God is willing that certain people should perish. In extreme versions of Calvinism, God, uh, they will say, God created certain people to perish for the very purpose of destroying them. God created them. And that to me is, that's hard stuff that I cannot swallow. And some people in their, in their zeal for their uh, theological position will go so far as to even... Uh, deny that God loves the whole world. I heard a well-known theologian from the reform position being interviewed a while back. And, and I, in many ways, I like this person. I like uh, much of what he writes. I read a lot of what he writes. But when it comes to the issue of salvation, I completely disagree with him on it or the technicalities of salvation. But he was asked in an interview, um, does God love every human being? And he evaded the question. He could not answer it. And I know why he didn't answer it, because he didn't want to publicly say what he really believes. No, God does not love everybody. That's the hard Calvinistic position. God does not love everybody. When we read in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, what the hard Calvinistic position is, God so loved the world of the elect and everybody else he didn't love. Jesus didn't die for everybody else. He just died for the elect. So all, the, all these things are connected to one another. But this, the, point, the reason that I'm belaboring this point this morning is because these two things, dead in trespasses and sins, and um, the idea that faith is the gift, these are some of the strongest arguments that they put forth for that position. So um, we disagree. We disagree we acknowledge that, again, it's a family dispute. We're all members of the same family. And obviously, God's not all that bothered by our different theological positions because he has seen fit in history to bless people who held to uh, both of the different views. Some of the greatest gospel preachers in all of history have been uh, guys who hold, held to a Calvinistic perspective, but there are plenty of great gospel preachers that disagreed with that perspective that have also been mightily blessed. So we get all uptight about it and want to fight and argue over it and those kinds of things. And I think God's kind of like, who cares? Let's just get on with getting the gospel out. Let's just get on with the real business of getting people saved. That's the important thing. So not of works. That's what it brings us to. Faith is not a work. It's clear that salvation is not of works. And Paul gives us a reason here, lest anyone should boast. But that's not the only reason why salvation is not of works. That's one reason. But if we look at the bigger picture again of what the scripture tells us, we, we know a couple of other reasons why salvation is not of works. Um, salvation is not of works because all have sinned. See, in order for salvation to be of works, to be saved by works, you'd have to have a perfect record. So salvation can't possibly be of works because none of us, none of us have a perfect record. So nobody could be saved by works. 
because I would have to have a consistently perfect record. I would have to have never have sinned, ever. Now, here's another problem. Even if I never sinned, which of course is impossible, but let's just hypothetically say, even if I never sinned, even our good works are tainted by sin because we are sinners by nature. So the scripture tells us that all of our righteousness is as a filthy rag in God's presence. So you see, it can't be of works because none of our works are good enough. It can't be of works because we've already fallen short of the glory of God. But then here, Paul tells us it can't be of works lest anyone should boast. Salvation by works would inevitably lead to pride, arrogance, and boasting, which in turn would ruin the pure atmosphere of God's kingdom and take the attention off the only one who is worthy of praise. Could you imagine if when we got to heaven, we had to sit around for ages and ages and ages and listen to people brag about how holy they were here on earth, how much better they were than other people? That would be hell. That wouldn't be heaven. I mean, who likes to sit around and listen to anybody brag? It's not fun. It's annoying, isn't it? But that's where it goes. If I think that I'm saved by something I do, then it's, it's going to lead to boasting. We can't boast. What do we boast in? The only thing that anybody in heaven will boast about will be about the Lord himself. Maybe you are familiar with this passage, God speaking to Jeremiah. He said, let not the mighty man, tell the mighty man not to boast in his might, tell the wise man not to boast in his wisdom, tell the rich man not to boast in his riches. If somebody wants to boast, tell them this is what they can boast in. They can boast in the fact that they know me. And that's it. We boast in the Lord. When we get to heaven, we're going to be boasting all right, but it's going to be about the grace of God and Jesus who brought us that grace. It's going to be about the love that sought me, the blood that bought me, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. That's what we're going to be boasting about. Now, the question then comes up, what about works? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So does that mean that as Christians, we are not responsible to do good works? No, it doesn't mean that at all. And there certainly has been confusion over this in uh, the minds of people. Some people think that when we say we're saved by grace, not by works, that what we mean by that is we never do anything righteous or good or any of that. We never do any of that. We just believed in Jesus and go our merry way and live our sinful lives and die and go to heaven. That's not what we believe. That's not what we think. Here's what we believe. Here's what the Bible teaches. Yes, there are good works, but they are the fruit of salvation, not the cause of salvation. This is where the confusion lies. The Bible is full of exhortation to good works. But who is the Bible exhorting to do the good works? People who are saved. 
You see, according to scripture, works are the fruit. They are the result of my salvation. They're not the basis for my salvation. I don't, I don't work my way into salvation. When I get saved, then I have works that proceed from that salvation. That's the biblical picture. And so Paul goes on to say in the 10th verse, and we'll take the 10th verse alone next time, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So salvation, we work not for our salvation, we work from our salvation. That's an easy way to understand it. I don't work to be saved. I get saved by grace through faith, but then I work from that salvation, that new life of Christ that's planted in my soul now brings forth good works, works of righteousness. They come forth as a result of our salvation. They do not bring us to salvation. By grace alone, through faith alone, that's how we're saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, we put our trust in Christ and God saves us through his amazing grace, through his incomprehensible grace in many ways. Peter, at the end of his epistle, he left the saints with these words. He said, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, the reality is when we grow in the knowledge of Jesus, we grow in his grace because he is the embodiment of grace. So as you continue to grow in him, you will continue to grow in grace, in your understanding of grace, in your experience of grace, and of course, in your appreciation of grace. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. That salvation that we've been given is God's gift to us. And we boast in him.